0: Welcome to Government in Plain Language, hosted by Mabinti Yella. Each episode, we talk to subject matter experts and former executives to uncomplicate the business of government.
1: Hello, everybody. We have another rendition of Government in Plain Language. You know what we do here. We're uncomplicating the business of government by featuring some of the seasoned veterans and subject matter experts every other month. So, today joining me today is Conrad Holloman, and he is the Senior Technical Project Manager for AI Machine Learning at Unity Technology. Unity is the world's leading platform for creating and operating real time 3D content. So, welcome, Connor. I'm so thrilled to have you. I mean, I am really excited. I've been really, really excited about this interview because when we had our conversation offline, I learned so much and I just thought you were just a fascinating. And really insightful person so i'm like really excited to get this opportunity to kind of pick your brain here so welcome to the show
0: oh happy to be here
1: okay so let's dig into you a little bit um you have such a expansive and diverse career from serving in the military and in afghanistan to being a program director for the air force Acceler- accelerate program these days you're kind of focused more on the, the startup entrepreneurial life so can you kind of like fill in the gaps in terms of your career <laughs>
0: um so i guess uh it's interesting because different people define a career different ways right, right? Like some folks are looking to you know there's something that they really love and they just want to be the best that they can at that other folks um Maybe they have a lot of different interests, or they have different things that they pursued either um, of their own accord and of their own interest, or because life has kind of guided them towards different directions and had them try a lot of different things. Right. Um, so, I would say that life has filled in the gaps a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. For me, just I've always kind of rolled with the punches. I always kind of tried to see, hey, what's next? What's the next opportunity? What's the next thing that I can do in the next place that I can be to help make a difference and uh, learn something new along the way?
1: Yeah. So can you like uh, give us some background to those uh, life gaps, so to speak, from a professional perspective? What have you been up to up until this point?
0: Yeah, I mean... So it's interesting because I actually I started my career and I started in my interest at, uh being more of a musician. Right. Um,
1: I saw that on your LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, and I was I was really interested in the idea of um, and, and the career of writing music for film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, I, I majored in music. And I would guess that a lot of your listeners know that there are certain career paths that are harder to achieve a lifelong career in others. Music is, is certainly one of them compared right. to say a focus in science or technology or business. Um, so I, you know, I'm walking down the street and um, I, I look to my right and I see a sign that says um, army reserve officer training Corps. We pay for your, you know, we'll pay for your college tuition. And I'm like, Oh, that, you know, that seems interesting. That seems right. like, something, you know, and then, you know, and you know, one thing led to another and um, that kind of, um, had me in a life situation where I almost lived in two different cultures at the same time. Right. One culture more focused on, uh, you know, I'm working and, and, and doing gigs at like 1 a.m. with a very different uh, crowd of people, mm-hmm. and then I'm up at 5:30 um, a.m. in just a few hours uh, doing physical training and standing in formation um, over with the uh, Army ROTC folks and you know doing field training exercises and that kind of thing. Uh, Very different personalities, very different cultures, very different mindsets. So that experience has kind of been in that perspective of like wearing a couple different hats at the same time from very different fields is something that I've carried forward throughout my career. Um, Mm -hmm. I ended up becoming in the National Guard as an infantry officer while also working at a company that is actually a combination of music and technology. And the company was named... Harmonics Music Systems and they developed um, a lot of video games actually uh, if you've heard of Rock Band or Guitar Hero or those or that series oh, yeah. wow. it was interesting being on the side of helping work to build these um, you know these very creative products Um, and also at the same time being in closer to the government and the military field, you know, one Uh week in a month, two weeks a year, um, which as folks who are in the National Guard know is never one week in a month, and two weeks a year. There's always additional training exercises, especially as we got uh, further and further into OIF and OEF, um, being sent to doing um, temporary duty or being sent to doing various training courses throughout the year. So I've always kind of led that split life.
1: Yeah. I mean, completely different kind of fields, you know, that's really fascinating. So, I mean, I guess, what were some of, other than trying to balance these pretty much two different personalities, essentially, you have to have, a, I would imagine, a completely different outlook and approach to each kind of career path. What were some of the biggest challenges beyond that?
0: I would say one of the biggest challenges was communicating that mm-hmm. to different people in terms of like how different Translating between different kinds of cultures, and right. what I mean by that is, number one, when you, when you live that sort of like dual track life, which I think anybody who has any kind of entrepreneurial DNA in them does. I mean, I, the joke I used to tell is like, you know, if an entrepreneur says that they, you know, if, if somebody tells you, "Hey, we don't have any side hustles; we're entirely focused on this," that person is probably not an entrepreneur. There's probably like yeah. at least five other things that they're doing and they're not telling you about. Right. Um, and I, I think that's true for the kind of personality type that engages in um, innovation and engages in any sort of like a creative or entrepreneurial work is part of what makes them entrepreneurial, innovative or creative is the property of synthesizing things from very, very different backgrounds. Um, Being broad, not necessarily being deep in any one particular field. Um, Not to say that being deep in any, there's nothing wrong with being deep in one particular field. Um, but it's, it's simply a different skill set, and it's a different experience in the terms of how you communicate that um, to people. Um, it's easy to understand, like, "Hey, I've been a software engineer for twenty years." Um, but when you've bounced between doing different roles, and um, you know you've been in the military, and you've also been in product development, and you've also been on the business side, and you it, it can be okay. hard, um, especially for larger organizations, to be like, "So, what does that make you? What sort of hammer are you?" Because I have a nail that I need to hit. Right. That isn't necessarily. Um, the way that, you know, innovation happens in organizations anyway, because uh, first of all, you know, the problem might not be actually a nail. And second of all, it might not be a hammer that you need to, to deal with it, right. um, which which can be a challenge.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing underlining uh, point here is agility. I think a lot of times businesses talk about, you know, you've been in government and you've been, you worked at the start world you know, being agile. Everybody, You have all these different agile frameworks, right? But part of understanding agility is also understanding that the flexibility of roles and responsibilities and being open to that and understanding the dynamic nature of business. So it's really interesting that as you mentioned your point. Speaking of which, the dynamic uh, nature of business, you spent a lot of time in bridging entrepreneurship with like the military, you know, working with Afworks and things like that. Can you touch on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it was exciting to be, um, to have the opportunity Um, to work with AppWorks as part of my uh, role at Techstars. Uh, And that's actually part of what attracted me to Techstars as well, Um, being at that junction of entrepreneurship, innovation, and innovation, while at the same time working to help drive that for one of the largest organizations uh, on the planet, the United States military, and specifically the United States Air Force. Um, There are very real challenges that... um, the culture of the um, Department of Defense faces. There are very real opportunities that entrepreneurial thinking can provide. Um, but because of those two different cultures and because of those mm-hmm. different mindsets, very often um, it can be hard for each to see the value and each to see the opportunity and engaging in mutual value with each other.
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. And you know, speaking of kind of, I was not say culture clashes, but I would imagine, I know in my experience of having Uh, Spent some time working as a civilian, of course, with the Navy. Uh, It was my very first time in a military uh, situation and working at the Navy Yard, and um, really experiencing the culture, different the cultural differences in how we approach work. You know, whereas you know, you know, in the civilian where I had worked, I had worked in other government agencies, particularly like the Justice Department and Department of Labor, and there was a certain level of uh, formality to it, but. I wasn't used to the, uh, let's how to put it, put it nicely, the very strict, even though we were civilians, right? Uh, that kind of military culture kind of being reinforced on us civilians, <laughs> you know, working in the Navy yard. that, that well, I thought that was very interesting. What are your thoughts on um, those kind of uh, cultural differences in, in terms of how it affects work getting done?
0: You know, what I always like to say is um, there are two things that make a really, dynamic and successful team. And that's um, diversity of thoughts Mm -hmm. and that's psychological safety. Um, And the more that diversity of thoughts expands within a team, the more that you have different disciplines, the more that you have different perspectives and people of different backgrounds who are working together on that team, the more and more challenging psychological safety gets. And by psychological safety, I mean um, the ability to communicate effectively with everyone on that team, the ability to see and respect the different perspectives and value that everybody on that team provides. It's an extreme challenge, actually based on a study that Google did. Um, But that also illustrates why different organizations think and behave the way they do. Right. If the mandate of the organization is very focused and very narrow, you're going to have teams that are very focused and very narrow. Right. Um, the mandate of the organization needs to be broader and I think more dynamically. Then by definition, that team is going to be made up of or will eventually filter, or if it wants to be effective, will eventually have broader and more dynamic people, but may not necessarily have that same level of focus and not necessarily that same <laughs> level of like tactical execution.
1: Right.
0: Um, an, an example of this is like if you get four folks who graduated from Um, the same hammer nail university and the same hammer nail clubs, you know, they all majored in uh, hammers and nails. Right. I would bet you that as a team, they're going to be the best folks to hammer nails that you've ever met. Yeah. But if you happen to provide them a challenge that doesn't involve a hammer or a nail, they're screwed. Right. And that's why you really need um, if you want to, like, provide, have a team that can take on diverse challenges and be ready to adapt and change, you need that diversity, you need those different perspectives to really be successful.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that multidisciplinary approach is, I think, crucial to really any successful initiative or any successful program. And, you know, I guess in the early days of AFWorks, how did you apply this kind of philosophy as you were developing the culture and the mission of AFWorks when you guys were involved putting that together?
0: So I guess I want to start by saying that I was a part of a process. Um, right. I, by no means, was the leader of that process. And one of the most amazing things about what AFWorks has accomplished is how they managed to bring so many innovative and dynamic personalities and leaders within the armed services who were wearing the uniform together to accomplish this. It's not something that you see every day in terms of finding these folks throughout the, um, throughout the government enterprise, if you will, Um, who have that drive and have that ambition and have that spark to want to try to do things differently and manage to get them all in the same room and provide them resources and then allow them the freedom of maneuver they need to actually execute on these ideas they have. That is a very difficult arrangement to create. Um, And as tech stars, with us working with AppWorks, I feel very privileged that we were able to help support that in the way that we were. Um, And where we engaged and where I specifically thought the most is how do we help act as that cultural translator, Mm -hmm. um, even for the folks who are coming from the more of this um, innovative mindset within government to take a look and and see what's going on in the outside world of private industry Um, and private industry. Um, does not stop once you leave the beltway. Private industry is a very, very big world outside of that, right. and then the international marketplace, which is even, you know, even larger in in, in scope in terms of how different um, different nations approach their um, defense innovation and how they think about things and how the culture of those societies affects how they think about innovation. So, being able to help, you know create that pathway and create that exchange of ideas to show like, hey, there are other ways. I'm not saying that the best ways, I'm not even saying that the ways that are right for this situation, but maybe you can take some things from each of the ideas that we're introducing to you and make it your own and make it unique to AppWorks and the Air Force and and, and a, and a solution that actually you know, demonstrates what the American warfighter can accomplish.
1: Um, and to that point, I, I guess you kind of hit on it a little bit, um, that relationship between these military organizations, especially this entrepreneurial uh, program in AFWorks and the startup and entrepreneurial community. So what are your thoughts on the way, you know, other than AFWorks, like what are your thoughts on the military or the government in general's approach to engaging with the startup and entrepreneurial community?
0: Um, what I like about afworks's approach is that they were thinking of it from the perspective of this is going to sound really. I mean, I'm going to be very direct. They were willing to approach outside agencies, outside vendors, um, and outside organizations by learning about their perspective Mm -hmm. rather than attempting to necessarily impress their own perspective upon those organizations. There are a lot of rules and regulations that exist for very good reason uh, as to how the government and re- representatives of the government can engage with organizations and the challenge can be the, the sort of um, second and third order effects of that uh, because when you have an organization as you know as powerful who can engage on, on the terms that the us government does that is willing to spend money and engage in partnerships and do all these different things you will inevitably have a group of private businesses that are going to cater specifically to meeting those needs better than anyone else. That's the nature of markets, that's the nature of the the free market. And as a consequence, the more that a private enterprise engages exclusively with the government, the more that they take on the characteristics of government Mm -hmm. and they can continue to act as a bridge between private industry and those perspectives. But the closer they get, the harder it can be to think outside the boundaries which, um, let's say, a request, you know, an RFP or an RFQ provides. It becomes a situation where I know that if I'm going to derive revenue, what I need to provide to this, uh, you know, contracting officer, whoever's, you know, whoever receiving these proposals on the other side, they are looking for this, this, and this. And I will provide them X, Y, and Z because that's what they want the challenge of really understanding the problem in more detail, because anybody who's working consulting knows that the problem that's been stated is never usually the problem that you have to actually solve to fix it. Right. Um, that doesn't happen and that can't happen the way that the system currently functions right now. Um, which I think is one of the biggest things to, to tackle. And, and it, it's always a process.
1: Right. That's something that that I've noticed talking to small businesses is that they'll see an RFP, they'll be on, in on those meetings, and then, you know, when they actually get to do the work all these different necessary pieces are now all of a sudden brought to the forefront. They weren't necessarily put in the actual, uh, on SAM, when the actual announcement of that particular project. Um, and so beyond, you know, the, the traditional means of getting gov- of government work, we're starting to see a lot more, the government take on a lot more uh, non-traditional uh, pathways. One, of course, it's called, you know, the Air Force has a challenge, their challenges, and there's, of course, challenge.gov. Um, do you see more of those kind of non-traditional approaches to acquisition uh, being more popular and more prevalent as a kind of a means to of kind of rectifying some of the issues in the current with the current way that uh, government buys products and services?
0: I think it's a step in the right direction. I think the biggest challenge is actually has less to do with any kind of rules or regulations though, defense acquisition reform has been going on for years and will continue to go on for years because of the way incentive structures work. Um, But uh, I I think that one of the most important things that could be an area of focus and understanding is uh, almost like getting better market reconnaissance and understanding what's happening Outside the scope of what might exist already when, you know, looking at, you know, different procurements and looking at, like, who are the standard government vendors, Who are the folks right. that we've always talked about? Who are the folks that we've known? You know, the, the old saying of, like, nobody ever got fired, you know, buying from IBM. Like, no contracting officer is going to get in trouble going with a known entity or a name right. that's done business with government for years. But by definition, that prevents innovation. By definition, right. that prevents um, new vendors and new ideas and and new new organizations from engaging with the government. Um, And it's challenged because you have to balance that trust as well as that ease of doing business that some of these more established organizations already have with startups or small businesses or possibly even not even startups or small businesses, but innovative companies who have simply chosen, usually they've chosen not to do business with the government or they're less compelled to do business with the government because of that cultural barrier and the fact that doing business with the government is so different than them doing business basically any other market.
1: Yeah. And I wonder, to to your earlier point, you're talking about how some of these bigger organizations almost adopt a personality and the culture uh, to the specific agency that they're working, particularly in in the military. You see this a lot with the military organizations. I wonder if that's also a big factor. Maybe some of these companies don't want to lose their identity and lose who they are to the big machine that is the the federal government. What what are your thoughts to that?
0: Um, I mean, I agree if you like, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Nietzsche, but if I'm just going to paraphrase, like the longer you steer into the government, the longer government steers into you. And I understand why a lot of small businesses don't want to do that, uh-huh. um, especially. Um, and this is also like one of the biggest challenges with government engaging with any kind of high growth tech startup that's doing disruptive ideas. Because um, if the idea is disruptive and has the potential for high growth, um, then by, like almost by definition, um, the way that the government does business will extract them from doing business with the government, um, right. almost by very definition, um, because of the speed in which the government um, moves when it comes to procurement, as well as the steps that are required to do business with the government as opposed to um, other commercial entities. And once again, I understand that a lot you know—a lot of that uh, red tape exists for a good reason, because right. you have to be stewards of taxpayer money. Right. Um, That being said, there is a balance and there is a cost to that. And that is a cost that we see in the form of the speed in which uh, looking at how many years has the government been working on digital transformation? That's right.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I go to all these different events. It's something that I I limit all the time. You go to these different different events, these government events hosted by the big boys, the Dells and the Deloits of the world. And it's IT modernization every year. And you're just like, wait a minute. uh, why are we still talking about this? Every time I go to an event, we're talking about modernizing the government. What's going on here?
0: You know? Yeah, I mean, I think the DoD has spent like sixteen billion dollars in like uh, data modernization, and I mean, what it really comes down to is that everybody wants to focus on uh, modernizing, you know, your data infrastructure, modernizing your IT, going to cloud. Um, but how many conversations are there about changing the culture? Right. so that systems can be adapted, so the organization can be more agile and be able to do this. Um, even agile um, becomes a process. Like when, Even when we're talking about agile and DevSecOps and, and these things, what they really are is about a, a culture and a way of communicating with each other that is a little bit more permissive and enables everybody to contribute more effectively with each other. Um, but if you decide to spend money on IT modernization before the culture of the organization is even suitable to bring on right. new people, bring on platforms, bring on new structures, then there will be organizations that will be willing to take that 16 billion and deliver you a thing. Will it actually accomplish the IT modernization goals that you, that you want? They can't change your culture, not unless like you've put in your statement, are you willing to do like hard decisions on personnel and staffing and organizational structure? And those are the hardest, some of the hardest conversations in government to have for all kinds of other reasons, which I'm sure you're you're abundantly aware of and your listeners are aware of as well.
1: Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, other than the technical requirements and I guess the personnel and people processes and and things, uh, aspect of, of the change, I think, I wonder if part of it is, when, whether it be at the departmental level or the presidential level, when we when these big, broad, and ambitious ideas are presented to these different uh, leaders, I wonder if part of the reason why it's hard, other than, you know, again, the systematic and the difficulties of changing an organization, all that stuff, I wonder if maybe uh, the dream isn't specific enough. The, these initiatives aren't um, when you say go to the cloud, what does that even mean? You know what I mean. What do you, when you say IT modernization, what is what are you talking about? What are you what are you modernizing? You know what I mean like I'm not you know trying to be remedial or elementary when I'm saying that, but I wonder if the goals are just not specific enough. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I absolutely 100% agree, and it comes down to first principles. Like by adopting this framework, by adopting this maturity model, by like moving to like what is it that you intend to accomplish? Okay, we want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. To right. do what? To do what? Like, And that's, that's the biggest thing in any organization. It's not just government, but it's just more challenging. It's like, how do you take right. that back to the mission that this agency has? Like, but, you know, if right. you're going to engage in this kind of decisive transformation, then there needs to be an understanding and there needs to be like a straight line between what you're trying to accomplish all the way back to the mission of the organization and how it drives right. whatever value means to that organization. And very often that line is broken or that line is disconnected at certain points because of communication challenges where it's like, what is valuable to this organization? Okay. So what is valuable to the team under this organization then go on and go so forth. Like, unless, until that line can be drawn, there's always going to be these challenges and there's always going to be like, Oh, the government, you know, spent money on this or wasted on that. It's like, well, it's not waste if it can be communicated how all the way up and down where it drives value and what value actually means to this agency that piece of what value means to an agency i want to pause for a second because that is one of the hardest challenges in government is like What Mm -hmm. does value mean to the agency? It's simple in the corporate world. And I want to, I want to like, I've been, you know, talking about, you know, government this and government that, but I want to talk, I want to also say that in many ways, the the corporate world and the private sector has it a little bit on easy mode uh, because there's a very clear metric of success and that metric is either green or red. Right. So, but in government, you're dealing with a lot more variables and a lot more challenges. So I want to pause and say like, I respect how much more difficult it is from a government context.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, to your point, you know, (laughs) the purpose of a business is to make money, It's it's to maximize. Well, if we're going to use the the textbook business school definition, the purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholders' uh, value. Um, So in government, as you know, the nature of government is it's not a for-profit business. It's supposed to be uh, serving the people in in the interest of the state. Um, So, you know, speaking of, you know, we talked, we kind of talked around it, but I want to kind of get your thoughts. Um, more directly on organizational transformation in the government. I mean, a big part of this show, it's, it's something that we've talked about with many of our guests, is what does organizational transformation look like on a government scale? Whether it could be, you know, your experiences uh, working with the military or, or or more broadly, what does that look like?
0: Yeah, um, so there are two ways, and this could be, this is any a big organization. This could be government. Um, this could right. be a, a large nonprofit or, or a Fortune 500 company. There, there are two general approaches that I've seen to innovation. Um, And the first approach that I've seen is where, and I'm speaking very generally, but I'm just gonna kind of illustrate a a story, where um, when an organization wants to be innovative, um, they look to get folks to contribute ideas, they find some of the the go-getters throughout the organization, they kind of get their best and brightest together. Um, They'll they'll bring them in as a team and they might carve out, let's like Innovation Wing or Innovation Hub or something like that. Um, They'll put all those folks together and they'll um, provide a lot of funding to them. Um, They might build a building, like they might create, like spend, you know, maybe $16 million or something on a building somewhere and call that an innovation hub and put all these super bright folks in it. And um, usually that ends up being a giant waste of time. Um, And there's there's a few different reasons for that. Um, the first is that a location, like simply having a space to innovate is not what drives innovators. Um, what drives innovators is a sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose over their own work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've moved all these bright and talented people into a new building, but not necessarily provided that autonomy, mastery, or purpose, um, all you've done is create more office space. Um, the right. second challenge um, is that usually when you, um, when you get all these go-getters in one place, they're usually very often dominant or alpha personalities. I, I don't like the term alpha very much, but like I, they're they're very much like they're bright, they're driven, and it can turn them a Game of Thrones or a Shark Tank really fast because um, often, um, especially if the organization is not coming from an innovation background before previously, uh, those personalities are not necessarily. Uh, have experience at working cross functionally, right? Uh, which means that they can be at odds with each other and not really understand each other's perspectives, and it can get a little uh, it can get political extremely quickly. The end consequences of that don't usually result in a outright failure, they result in a declaration of success. Um, in terms of like, hey, we have done this, we have created this team, we have put this together. But there won't be much in the way of actual results that drive value for that agency or enterprise. The result will be the action instead of following the actions. Like, we did this, we did something. Did it drive any um, overall efficiency or effectiveness for the agency in accomplishing its mission? That is not necessarily always clear. What is clear is that we spent this money and made this change, and we should be congratulated for spending this money and making this change. Um, I have seen this several times, and that declaration of victory is often where an innovation ever dies. Um, Because when you've declared victory, you're done. Right. Um, and there is no declaration of victory when it comes to innovation because innovation is a continuous process. Right. It's, it's iterative. I'll pause here before I get into the, the second way, but uh, in case you have any, any um, initial thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to your point, it's a process and experience. It's kind of how I, I always, um, you know, I'm in the business of brand strategy, right? It's, it's how I describe a, a brand, right? A brand is a living, breathing a- entity and great brands become ecosystems, right? You, you look at, whether you like it or not, you know, you look at an Amazon or something, or you you look at these big telecommunication companies, you know, they start off as a little idea and, and kind of made sure that in creating and in uh, expanding their idea, their their brand, they were able to kind of create these many uh, organisms within their, their ecosystem. So I definitely understand that perspective. But feel free to continue with your point. I'm, this is very fascinating to me.
0: Um, yeah. And, and, and the second way is the way that I have seen be more successful because it draws less attention to itself. Um, some of the most innovative stories that you see come out of Washington or any big organization um, come from not making a splash. Right. Um, they come from a small, highly motivated group of people, um, not like the previous example, but like folks who have demonstrated like the ability to operate cross-functionally, but much smaller groups that are basically sectioned off from the rest of the organization. Right. They're sectioned off. They usually have some very, very high top cover. Um, and they're provided the budget, and they are left alone to do what they need to do. Right. And that is always a risk. You don't exactly know where they're going to go, and you don't exactly know what's going to come out the other side. But the only way that a lot of the times these ideas that can transform an organization can actually gain enough traction to succeed is by allowing them to do what they do without the dynamics of the rest of the organization peeking in on them, Trying, like, identifying ways to collaborate too early before they're ready. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most insidious things, actually. Like, collaboration is very important and it's very good, but very often, collaboration um, that is happening too early on can smother the ability of these small, innovative teams, small, innovative groups to actually get an idea that's fully formed and fully baked. Um, it's a little bit like providing too much uh, fuel to the fire too fast. You need to let them kindle. You need to let it grow to a certain point so that it can become self-sustaining. Otherwise, if you try to uh, merge everything together and integrate it into the organization too quickly, it's just not ready yet. It'll be snuffed out by everything else in the organization that it may intersect with and it may interact with. Uh, I've seen that um, quite a few times. The way that like innovation truly becomes successful is when the idea and the innovation, whether it's a business model innovation or a way of executing mission, it becomes so demonstrably better and so much clearly more effective than what's being done now that it's too hard to stop. Right. And the only way that it becomes too hard to stop is, is if it's protected and guarded and shielded and left alone to be allowed to do that.
1: Yeah. Um, I just want to pick up on some points here. Cause it sounds like too, that there's a part of this conversation that kind of speak to what I said originally is that it's having a clear and collective understanding a shared understanding of what success looks like. And then the other thing too, I would say, um, kind of defining, clarifying terms, innovation. Because you mentioned like when, when you talk about innovation, what are we innovating? What is the ultimate end goal, right? Because I think a lot of times we, when we talk about innovation, we speak technically. Oh, we're going to use AI to solve a particular problem. That's how we're going to innovate or something like that, right? And I wonder when people are trying to innovate or trying to transform the organization, I wonder if part of the issue is lack of clarity a lack of um, defined terms, like terms that are, again, that create a shared understanding across functional areas, across people who are going to, stakeholders who are going to be ultimately involved implementing and executing this particular transformation. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think... One of the challenges in innovation is communicating the right message at the right time with the right level of detail. And that's the challenge of marketing or any kind of communication, but innovation is especially hard because you're trying to socialize new ideas. Right. And when you're trying to socialize new ideas, it makes sense to speak generally in order to get buy-in and in order to get everybody some kind of shared understanding, but you have to get specific too, right? It's You have to get specific at some point too. And and the challenge, and speaking back to the example I made before about like how most organizations approach and, and fail at innovation, it's often because they went very general in terms of like what they want to do. Like, hey, we're just going to get everybody together and they're going to come out with the best ideas and we're just going to see which one is best, or we're going to create this innovation zone, or we're going to create this AI initiative to assess AI and it's exploratory. Um, but it doesn't get to the specific. It doesn't get to like, okay, so where does this... And when I say specific, I don't necessarily mean we need to use a reinforcement learning approach to do the X, Y, and Z. I don't mean that kind of specificity. I mean, specificity in terms of like, we are going to explore this general area of ideas because we think that it can help us improve our ability, at, let's say, as an agency to accomplish this mission X, Y, and Z to make this part of our mission more effective or to be more efficient in how we you know, spend money here. And that way, there's a clear way of connecting the dots between like what it is that we're taking on and how it is affects the mission. It all right. comes back to the mission. How does this affect the mission and impact that mission? Because right. without that, then it's a lot of. Uh, I'm trying to try to remember my Shakespeare. A lot of sound and fury signifying nothing.
1: Oh, great Shakespeare. We love Shakespeare here. <laughs> uh, bringing me back to my days of being an English major at University of Maryland. Um, so yeah, I think another part of this that I would love to get get your thoughts on is. Um, you you emphasize when when we talk and actually to kind of give our listeners some context of how I met Conrad here is I was actually working on a project about organizational transformation and um, he reached out right he, he reached out and said you know I have some thoughts on that and so in in our conversation we had, had a very long conversation really insightful and, and enlightening kind of conversation one of the things that we that I remember uh, was a constant theme in our conversation about change and, and transformation was that. You emphasize that oftentimes with the larger organizations, maybe not so much the startups and the smaller organizations, that uh, change is often a reactionary and not necessarily intentional. Can you kind of expand that?
0: Yeah, um, I think it comes down to human nature um, and that uh, when an organization is large, um, the tasks that everybody has to do become more and more and more and more specific and you're rewarded based on how well you can execute that specific task. And that's true the bigger and bigger organization gets. With a smaller organization, you have to wear a lot of hats, and that makes it easier to see things from different points of view. It makes it easier to move Mm -hmm. fast, but you're constrained in terms of impact. Uh, Whereas a big organization, there can be very, very huge impact, but the amount of view and perspective that any one person has into what they do or what's going on can be very constrained. Uh, What that means is that in order for a big organization to change, there almost has to be something existential that's looming um that's kind of chasing them that like there has to be like a, something big that's about to happen that forces everybody to like align to counteract that or to respond to it in, in terms of responsiveness uh, otherwise the organization doesn't have enough the organization doesn't have enough motivation to change right there are so many places that where a change effort or change initiative can get stymied or slowed down because other folks are not seeing the immediacy or there's not a call to action. There's not a sense of urgency. And this is even hard like for leaders to execute within a large organization, even if you're at the very top. It's incredibly difficult if you're not at the very top. And even if you are at the very top, it's hard because it's not just a matter of what you want to do and how you want to do it. It's also a matter of communicating that across the organization so everybody is aligned and that gets exponentially more difficult the larger an organization is if you're trying to do it as a middle manager or an individual contributor I'm not going to say it's impossible grassroots can happen within an organization mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's a non-trivial task I'll leave it at that yeah
1: super difficult for sure um, you touched on it you mentioned leadership and I know that you know looking at your tweets and looking at your social media posts um, Leadership is a big thing and a big uh, topic for you. And uh, you mentioned the importance of culture and leadership in cultivating change. You once relayed that an Army officer you served with said that leadership is about addition, not subtraction. Talk about this in the context of organizational change.
0: Yeah. um, So anybody at the top of an organization has to be very good at understanding different perspectives and, and where different disciplines are coming from in terms of why they want to do what they want to do. Um, some in, in a company, some sides of an organization are going to be more rigid. Other sides of the organization need to be more flexible in their mindset because that's what their role requires in order for them to be effective at that role. Um, that's why leadership is so much about addition, because you need to get a lot of different personality types and a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different mindsets to align in a general direction. You will never be able to get them 100% aligned, but you need to get them to align in one particular direction in order to apply the full efforts of the organization and accomplish the mission, which is an important dynamic. Because one thing that I don't talk about in, in that same tweet, which is very important too, is that execution is about subtraction. Right. Entirely about subtraction. Execution is about focus, managing scope not necessarily letting all the different other factors get in the way and just focusing on the immediate and individual task at hand and aligning to that, mm-hmm. um, which is the, that, that's the inherent tension of organizations between leadership and execution between the top and, and top and the bottom between the strategic and the tactical. It's because leadership has to think more expansively and be able to connect more open dots and execution has to focus on one dot right. and really knock that dot. Right. It
1: makes, definitely makes sense. And, you know, um, Another part of our conversation that we've had offline, um, you talk about people. I mean, people are in any initiative, whether it be a program, whether it be uh, product development, business development, communication, any functional areas like relying, of course, on people. Um, For now, you know, who knows how sophisticated AI or AI robots will be in the next 10, 15 years. But for now, people matter, right? Human beings doing things matter. Um, And one of the things that was a big part of our conversation is kind of this kind of, I want to say, framework or formula um, where you you mentioned that when facilitating a change, you prioritize the people, the processes, and then the tools. And why do you think, you know, managers, whether it be top leadership, maybe at the SES departmental level or uh, middle managers, why do you think they overlook the people part of this equation so much? Is it because it's hard? Is it because... Certain different factors that is it because of the unpredictability of, of people? Why is that? Why do we miss that so much?
0: Um, I think it's because we think how we're incentivized to think. Mm-hmm. And if what got us, to, you see this in, uh, in software development a lot like the person who is an individual contributor, who is a great coder and a great engineer, um, you know, when you move them to closer and closer to management and leadership positions. They still apply that mindset of like that they're working with computers or they're working with right. inanimate objects, and not that they're working with um, they're working with folks who are far more complex and far have far more you know more nuances in terms of how they engage and how they interact with others. And if the organization incentivizes, it aligns leadership to the ability to execute a individual task, then that is what happens. Right. If the organization sees leadership as a separate skill set from task execution, then that organization is going to be a bit healthier. Uh, because what ends up happening is if what you've been incentivized by is how well you can hammer that nail. Right. And you're now in a situation where it's like, hey, I have all these other problems to deal with. You're going to be like, well, I know how to hammer this nail. I'm just going to do that really well. Right. I'm going to ignore the rest. I'm not going to do the other stuff. The people stuff is messy. The interacting with others, you know, and the the emotional intelligence stuff. That's messy, that's harder. I'm not sure why I should do this. We have rules, we have these, like, and this is a common thing. Like this is where like they move from tools to processes, right? Because they'll go from new leaders, will go from, okay, so clearly, like, you know, this isn't it, I can't like just do this all on my own. So and I can't just do everything myself. So if I have a team, then maybe I need to create some policies or some processes on this how everybody should do things. Okay. So that brings us to processes, um, which is better. Don't get me wrong, like having good processes is important. Right. But the thing that enables people to engage with new tools is good processes and they know how to use them. But the thing that makes people want to adopt the processes is their trust in you.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Their trust yes. that you know what you're doing. Right. Their trust that you actually um, are going to help them be successful and help the organization be successful. And that's where people come in. It, it's all about trust. And you know what you want to see, I think, in, in the, the leaders who are at the top of an organization is their ability to build that trust.
1: I mean, is there, um, you know, speaking of the leaders, because you you mentioned, I think I noticed um, from my time in government, um, you know, you have some, to your point, people who are really great technically, they're good at hammering that nail and they move up in an organization and they become managers and they're not necessarily equipped to handle the other aspect of being a leader, of being a manager. I want to say they're poor managers. they've never really had to manage other people other than than themselves. So I guess my question um, is, is it maybe a factor of the fact that maybe certain people are being promoted to these management uh, positions too early? Or is it maybe that um, I'm talking about these technical folks, these like software engineers that all become project managers, right? And nothing gets technical folks. I'm just kind of making an, uh, an example here. Or is it simply that maybe these organizations need to find people who are, I don't want to say natural leaders, because I don't believe in the whole natural leader thing, but um, who are more equipped or more trained to lead and lead people. What are your thoughts on that? Or is it, or is it you know, there's, it's much more complicated than that.
0: Um, I, I think that large organizations tend to value having training for leadership much more mm-hmm. for this very reason, because they understand how that training affects the bottom line and right. how important it is to have good people um, in those roles. Uh, just because the, the productivity of those teams, the motivation of those teams, those abilities of those teams to contribute value to the organization is so much higher when that investment in helping them become stronger leaders right. or at least help identify, like, identify leadership potential. And I, I agree with you. I think that everybody can be a leader. I think that the context in which somebody is an optimal leader is different depending right. on their personality type. Um, some folks who are great leaders in one situation are not necessarily the right leaders for another situation. Right. And leadership is not like you can put this person anywhere and they're going you know, to come out at the head of the pack. Because there are some folks who will come out at the head of the pack if you put them in charge of four people. And there are some folks who will come out of the head of the pack if you put them in charge of four thousand. But those are two different personality types. Usually, one is not going to be in charge of the other. Right.
1: And how do you find that balance? As let's say a CEO or a program manager or head of an organization, how do you find that balance? How do you? What are some ways to, to ensure that the right people are doing the right things? Like they're they're in positions to to be successful.
0: Um, you invest in people and you reinforce, I mean, values alignment comes before anything else. But I I would say that you invest in people and demonstrate through your actions and demonstrate through your organization that you're making that investment in order to help them be successful, in order to provide them that career path or provide them that path to to whatever it is that they're motivated to do. Um, Something I want to stress here also is that not everybody wants to be a leader, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, However, there is a problem when somebody wants to be a leader and is not equipped with those skills, or is not being set up for success to be a leader within the context of that organization. That is a problem. And there is a problem where somebody who is an individual contributor but is being pushed into a leadership position because everybody likes them or because they're so effective at their job, right. When they don't want to do that, that is a problem. Right? Uh, if they feel that their only path towards career growth is to do something mm-hmm. or to take a track that they do not want to take, that is a problem. I and mean, you, you see that all the time.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um... And that's one thing uh, that I really loved about uh, one of the consulting agencies that I worked for is that um, once you build your technical foundation, you have two paths. It's either uh, you become the principal subject matter expert consultant path, or you, you become the project manager, the leadership path. So it's like recognizing that um, once you get to a level of experience and in technical proficiency and um, mastery... The career growth isn't simply, okay, you've mastered these things, become a manager. It's like, okay, there's different levels to growth, which I think was really, really helpful and I really appreciate it from that particular consulting uh, agency I worked for. Um, do you see more government agencies kind of approaching, I think, growth management in that, in that way?
0: You know, I think that they all want to.
1: But would it work?
0: Um, I think it depends on the culture of that organization and whether they understand that there are different kinds of leadership. Because there are organizations that understand the value of leadership and train folks on leadership, but the style of leadership that they're training people for is suitable for one context, but not another. Right. So if you're training somebody to be a great leader of four people, that's not the same as them being a leader of 40, and it's not the same as them being a leader of 400, and there has to be an understanding of how to cultivate that longer path of leadership among different sizes and groups of people, amongst different multifunctional groups, because it gets more complex. You know, you you meet folks who you know they were you know they might they might have been great leaders for once again, all their people were from Hammer Nail University, right? And they were great at leading in that context, and they were absolutely the most effective. And you look at that, and was like, that the person's a great leader. Yes, in that context, yes. But there has to be an understanding of the context of leadership.
1: Right, right. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, and then given our conversation where we talk about hiring and training, um, one of the things that that I'm definitely focused on with this show is is understanding work day, workplace development and how do we train the right people and making sure that, you know, we just don't have a lot of people from uh, Hammer and Nail University, right? And uh, just doing hammer and nail stuff, you know, uh, making sure there's kind of a a diversity of skills and a diversity of the right and relevant skills. Um, And so in in your perspective, you know, do you think that agencies understand what skills they need and how to recruit those folks for those skills? Um,
0: I don't know. I think that every agency is at a different stage when it comes to Mm -hmm. that. And I think that there are other constraints based on how the government thinks about talent. Right. One of the things um, I said before is that we we talk a lot, especially um, you see a lot in uh, lately about the defense industrial base and supply chain and where the US is you know getting its stuff from. We talk a lot about the defense industrial base. Um, but we don't talk a lot about the defense talent base. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't talk a lot about where certain kinds of individuals come from who are going to add value um, at different roles of the uh, defense enterprise. Um, and it may be that the tracks that we have that worked for a long time. It may be that those tracks change. It may be that those, as skill sets and organizations change, we need to change our talent pipeline and how we source and how we grow and how we lead that talent differently. Um, there are certain principles of um, of engaging and you know organizational change and leadership um, that have been true for the past um, three thousand years. There's, can't remember where I read this from, Monday for. Um, it was interesting because it was a quote from, it was a story from a military leader. I have no idea if this is actually true. Right. uh, Who, he had a um, soldier um, under him who was clearly like the the talk of the town. Everybody looked up to him. Everybody respected him. And everybody was like, you should make this person a general. You should make this person a general. And um, the leader, um, whose name was um, Genghis Khan, (laughs) said, there is nobody stronger than this soldier there is nobody faster than this soldier there is nobody who works harder um than this soldier but not everybody is like him and he doesn't understand that not everybody can be as fast as him not everybody can be as good as him right therefore he cannot be a general
1: right and it's it's interesting you mention it because we see that context within sports right like if you like I'm a big soccer fan I'm a big Arsenal fan unfortunately big Arsenal fan sad times but um you know, uh, a lot of times in, in sports, it's the best players oftentimes make horrible managers, right? It's usually like the very average, um, bench time players that become exceptional managers. And I think, uh, I think back to, um, I hate saying this as an Arsenal fan, but, uh, one of the greatest managers in soccer and football is Sir Alex Ferguson talks about, um, he says that you know, there are a lot of people who, he, you know, he recruits talent, the superstars, people who have exceptional natural ability. But one thing that he looks for is character. Um, when he was putting together, like his team were super successful. And um, he says that, this quote that I always think about, he says that uh, character is there when talent no longer works hard. And I think about that uh, in the context of leadership in the context of finding the right people. So... Not everybody, to your point, is a superstar in their own, you know, in terms of their technical ability and stuff like that. But how do we attract, entice, and retain those superstars that exist in the private sector that it exists in academia? Like, how do we get those folks to come work for the government?
0: Um, there's a lot of different. Uh, there's a lot of different facets of that, mm-hmm. and I think that one of the challenges that government has is. Um, that you get a lot of folks who are mission-driven. And then you also have a lot of folks who are not to be direct. And when you have folks who you want to get of a certain talent background, um, it is not enough to have a job for them. It has to be the right job with the right compensation and the right motivating structures. Um, And it's not always clear. I mean, if I go on USA Jobs, I understand that the job has been designed very well in terms of like, what is it that this person will do? but not necessarily who this person is. Right. What is it that's going to make this person affected? the role? Is it simply the task they will accomplish from day to day? Is it how they interact with others? Is it their alignment with the culture? What is the culture? And when you start asking questions like that, what you find is that a lot of organizations have not really defined that in great detail, or they have defined it, but it's changed, or as the organization scaled, um, that expectation has not kept up with everything else that's happening. And this is an ongoing battle. There's nobody, there's no organization that can do this perfectly. Um, but that's where you see that inevitable tension. And you, that's where you kind of see a lot of those challenges end up because it's easier to focus on the tools than it is to focus on the processes um, or the people. It's just an easier problem. It's smaller in scope. It's easier to focus on. I get it. It's easier to execute. But it may not necessarily be the thing that leads to success.
1: Yeah, and having one bad apple has long-term ramifications on an organization
0: yes it does
1: you know so um you know I guess I've always wondered why there's not a lot of emphasis on organizational culture and defining it early on um there's something that like for me um working in the brand world I mean our organization when we when we think about brand we think of it holistically not just simply like the external messaging and visual identity but like we've spent a lot of our time in culture building, making sure, working with our clients to make sure they have a set of, institutionalized set of values and a set of personality traits. You know, I always tell my clients like, well, this document that we're creating, this, this conversation we're creating, and so that when you're ready to recruit people to your organization, you know exactly the type of personalities are, that are going to fit. And I wonder like, other than it being hard, like, you know, why is organizational culture and development uh, particularly as a, in terms of creating cultural norms and stuff like that. I always wonder why it's not heavily emphasized in these large organizations and even small, especially, I would say even more in the startup world. And maybe you can speak to that because I noticed that like with the startup world, uh, they start thinking about culture right after the lawsuits happen. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like uh, they get, you know, get lawsuits or people are complaining about the, this is a toxic workplace. Like it's like afterwards, like, Why is that? Why do so many startup founders wait till, I want to say wait till the last minute to to deal with the people part of growing their business and building their business?
0: Um, Because uh, people are hard. People takes time. Thinking in terms of culture is difficult if you haven't been in a large organization before. And a lot of these folks can be younger sometimes. Right. If you haven't been in like a large organization and seen across a couple of different Organizations, how culture affects their performance. It's easier to think of culture as this fuzzy thing that doesn't affect anything. But there, there's a reason that you know that, that quote about like culture eats strategy for right. breakfast is true. It doesn't matter how good your strategy is, because if you have a poor culture, you'll never be able to be fast and execute it effectively. Or you might be able to execute you know different strategies fast and effectively for a short time, but you burn everybody out, or you allow seeds of toxicity to form uh, w- w- within that organization. Number one. Uh, number two. Um, the incentive structure that a lot of these startups is not to spend the time and get it right when it comes to the culture. Mm-hmm. The incentive structure is to grow and hit particular revenue targets or particular hit particular growth targets. Um, if culture that that long-term investment in culture is something that is less easy to put a number on, and if you can't put a number wow, on okay. it, and if it can't be measured, it can't be managed, right? So if it's hard to measure then there's the perception that like maybe focus on the things that you can control. So focus on things that you can affect because this is difficult. I mean, the the, uh, the flip side of that, I think this is a Drucker quote, is um the most important things in management are the things that cannot be measured, um, which is stuff like the morale and uh, right. welfare uh, mindset of the team. That is not something that to this point you can effectively put a number on.
1: Yeah. Being able to quantify uh, what you're doing, even though, and it's something that we, we in the branding and marketing world, uh, well, branding world really uh, struggle with, is like people. I think businesses understand the importance of culture and and having a brand identity and having a, a brand purpose um, and a strategy, but because you can't directly link having a you know a set of norms and developing that sort to to revenue and uh, retention and things like that. It's not, it's like after the work, you can see that the fruits of that labor, that it kind of makes it difficult to, to get people to invest in that, which I think is unfortunate, but it's, I think it's a reality of, of what the world we live in. Um, so we talked about a lot about uh, organizational transformation. We talked about workplace development a little bit. Um. One of the things that I, speaking of like transitioning and speaking of workplace development, one of the things that I thought was really interesting and looking and doing some research on you is this Operation Code uh, initiative. Can you talk a little bit about that and the impact it's having on the workforce?
0: Yeah. um, So Operation Code is a a nonprofit that I volunteer for. um, And the mission is to really help um, veterans and uh, military families and um, get ready for the careers of the future, and not not the careers of the past. Um, we focus a lot on careers in the tech industry, primarily on um, more of the uh, computer programming side. But we also get more and more interest in um, things like uh, uh, user experience, product management, mm-hmm. uh, cybersecurity, data science. Uh, every day, it's a it's a rapidly expanding field. Um, and not just how we can help uh, get those folks into jobs coming in and transitioning, or for military spouses, how we can help them, you know, get that remote job uh, when they have to move from base to base, um, but also how we can really work with them to thrive and grow in their careers, um, because the challenge of transitioning from a military culture to a civilian culture. Is a significant one. Um, right. And, you know, what What made somebody successful in the military or in one particular culture does not necessarily mean that they're going to be successful in another. Um, making sure that they're ready for that and that they um, have everything they need and all the tools in their arsenal to be successful is very important to us. Yeah,
1: that's a fantastic mission, um, particularly to so many, uh, you know, former generals and captains and stuff like that. End up working in the civilian world as contractors. Yeah. So I think that's an amazing mission and great work. I think that's very important.
0: It is, and it's it's also um, very uh, very challenging work too. Um, it's mm-hmm. uh, this community is growing uh, every day, and we get more and more folks who are interested in uh, uh, establishing their career in the tech industry. And really doing everything we can to set them up for success is uh, it's a it's a never ending battle.
1: Yeah, I can I can only imagine. Um, particularly, you know, given the context that we're in a global pandemic, it's got to probably be equally uh, more challenging in that respect. So I, I want to talk a little bit more um, about innovation. And I want to talk a little bit more about, we talked about the talent gap, but I want to talk about the technology gap um, between the federal government and the private sector. I mean, I just kind of give you an example. Like I remember, I used to joke with people, this is public knowledge, that you know, when I worked for a particular organization, we were on Windows XYZ, while the private sector was on like a few, the, the next two levels up in, um, in the operating system. I guess my question with regards to that is, what can the federal government do to kind of at least be pace neck? I don't want to say neck and neck, but closer to industry in terms of the technologies that are implemented and, and integrated in uh, government agencies and just uh, the innovation race, if you want to call
0: it. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, this goes back to a couple of items that we were talking about before, mm-hmm. um, in that information structures follow organizational structures, and it may take um, significant organizational change, either from the model that we discussed before about like having certain, you know, embryonic um, areas where maybe new agencies or new offices of agencies are developed. Um that can work you know that can start growing and maturing in parallel with the current solutions. so there can be a smooth transition to the new way of doing things. And when I say that, I know full well what that means is folks who are doing done things the old way are going to look at the new way and they're going to see that as a challenge and a threat. Um, right That's why I mentioned the dynamics I made before is like it's the only way that, Progress can really happen without some sort of forcing function that disrupts the organization in a far, far uh, more severe way and really negatively affects the lives of the people in it. Uh, Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be the disrupted. And it's actually one of those words that I really dislike about Silicon Valley because very often the thing that is getting disrupted is people's lives. Um, Mm -hmm. The key once again here is leadership. How do you create an environment where you can help transition folks from and it's a to operation code. How do you create an environment where you can transition folks from the old way to the new way of doing things while showing them like, this is the potential of what can be accomplished. This is the good and what can be done, but we all have to align and we all have to move forward in order to accomplish that. And to to, um, move away from that, um, scarcity mindset of like, this is what I've done. This is what I've always done. This is the way it's always going to be. Cause that is not the world that we live in. And, uh, was that uh, one of the previous secretaries of the VA, Aaron uh Eric Shinseki, like, yeah, I think, said it best. He was a retired general, I believe. Um he said it best, which is um if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Mm,
1: yeah, yeah. That actually uh, interestingly brings me, you know, a perfect transition to my next question. Um one of the guests I had on uh on the show, we had a very interesting uh conversation about the government ultimately like about a particular book. I can't remember the name of the book, but it was basically a book that kind of detailed a world where the government became irrelevant where um all of our needs were managed and dominated by you know organizations like google and mcdonald's and stuff like that um it sounded like a disaster a dystopian future <laughs> um but but you know the reason why he brought it up was to kind of you know wake government agencies up a little bit and also kind of create that sense of urgency in terms of recognizing that things need to happen. Government needs to kind of innovate and, and wake up a little bit to kind of the, the growing problems, the dynamic nature of the world that we live in. What are your thoughts on irrelevancy? Because we talked, you know, that, that that quote is kind of perfectly aligned with this kind of conversation.
0: I think that it's interesting because I was just reading a little bit, a little bit about this. There are many societies, um, I would say, I, I think it's in the uh, 12 or 1300s, um, mm-hmm. especially in uh, medieval Europe, um, like the Hanseatic League and, and, and certain other um, sort of merchant, some of the, the Italian city-states, where essentially what they had was corporations um, in that position of acting as government. Right. And what, it, what ends up, I think, uh, like inevitably happening is when corporations end up standing in that role for a long time, they basically just inherit all the characteristics of a government, and they might as well be a government. Because at that point, especially in a, in a, in a complex world, um, I mean, this kind of takes place in different ways, right? Like people are unhappy with one country. Kind of, people were unhappy in England, so they went over and colonized America. People were right. unhappy where they came from, so they decided to go somewhere else. Um, if you decide to buy, you know, if you're unhappy with Coke, you decide to buy a Pepsi. Now, these are more more, more and more severe, like, kind of changes in people's lives, don't get me wrong. Right. Um, but, uh, that, na- that nature of competition is, is something that you see, you know, in the private markets and the public markets. And it's really all just a spectrum of, uh, spectrum of things anyway, no matter how much we try to create, you know, significant, you know, no matter how much we talk about public versus private, it's right. a spectrum, right? Because you have 501c3s, you have like various public-private partnerships, you have various other st- structures and entities that right. are kind of in the gray area in between. It's the same thing for any of this stuff. So what i will say is that i'm just going to look at facebook for a second the problems that facebook is having right now are in terms of like uh, speech and uh moderation and these big tech companies mm-hmm. that are operating these platforms these are the problems that previously governments have now these companies right. are having them and we see how well they're dealing with them or not well they're dealing with them um and some people look at that and be like well you know why do these corporations have this authority and, and it's like well is that really that different than you know, rebelling against an organization or let's say, you know, a government where it seems like completely, you know, complete authority because corporations are authoritarian organizations or maybe more like oligarchies, right? Like you have a board of directors right. who like selects who the CEO is. So when you when you stop and think about it, there are some very clear parallels between corporations and governments that are only questions of scale, in my view. Mm-hmm. Like what, if you look at the United States, you could also perceive that as a, you know, a corporate organization of 350 million people, all of whom right. have levels of commitment to the organization. Some who work in government have higher levels of commitment. Some of us who are just citizens have lower levels of commitment. Right. Now will take that to a, a small business. You have everybody there is highly committed because it's small. Um, right. It's all a matter of uh, perspective.
1: Mm, that's definitely an interesting way of looking at things. Um, but, you know, um, but to the point about re- relevancy, um, how does, I think, um one of the things that I noticed, uh, it's funny enough, I was I was actually talking to a former uh, colleague about um, not really this topic, but a, a similar topic where I was saying that I feel like the federal government has an image problem in terms of um, there's certain perceptions uh, that individuals have, particularly people who are, I hate the term millennial, but I would say the millennials have in terms of government. And in your mind, when, it, when we're talking about irrelevancy, when we're talking about things of that nature and talking about attracting talent. Do you see that um, government agency, and I'm talking about big government in general, I'll mean, i even include local government as well, municipal governments as well. Do you see that that maybe the government in terms of talent, acquiring talent and and people working that has that kind of perception problem? Is that, would you say that's a big contributor, a big factor in why people have such a hesitancy to work with government?
0: I mean, you've had, for the past few decades, you've had more and more of like, the era of big government is over. The, the most right. dangerous words in the government in the, in the English language is um, "I'm from the government and I'm here to help." You've had <laughs> a couple of generations at this point who have been raised on the idea that government is either incompetent or malicious or can't get things done or some, you know, some combination of all those things. So is it really a surprise that the culture has shifted from one where government is a role in which you serve and work to serve others and, and worked for the betterment of the, uh, you know, the entire citizenry. Is it really that much of a wonder that we've shifted from that to uh, a mindset and a culture where um, government is just there to screw things up? I don't think it's a surprise at all. Um, And I, it's interesting to see some like, the pendulum swing from side to side as folks, you know, especially with COVID realize, oh, wait, government actually does have to do certain things.
1: Right. Right. right.
0: And maybe maybe we have a generation that sees that results in the expansion of government. I mean, we're about to spend the I mean, we'll see what happens in Congress. But I think a lot of money might get spent pretty soon. Not to say that we haven't spent a lot of money already. Maybe that's the direction we're heading. Then again, maybe not. Uh, I know better than to say what's going to happen in Congress, and anybody who's telling you what's going to happen—I uh, don't know if they're uh, they're a good, uh, good uh, subject for your podcast.
1: Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> no, no, nothing is uh, nothing set in stone with anything that's due to Congress or the government. It's things change uh, very uh, unpredictable. Uh, yeah, but to your point, for sure, I think that's uh, something that I, I've noticed. Um, people are starting to realize that government doesn't, but it's always do when it's a disaster, right? Um, People will uh, complain about the government and then ask for an SBA loan, right? Or um, their house uh, gets destroyed by a tornado, but need FEMA, right? Need FEMA assistance. So um, it it is interesting to see, um, you know, just the ways in which uh, public perception of a government, federal, the big government has changed or will change. So we talked a lot about different ideas, And and to that point, because one of the questions I want to ask related to that is, so how does, other than kind of coming to the rescue when disasters happen, what are some ways that the federal government or big government can change that perception of being slow and, you know, incompetent? I'm using incompetent quotes. I'm not, I'm not being uh, disrespectful. I I do work with government. So, uh, but, but that's the kind of perception, right? How does government change that perception?
0: The government can't change that perception. The people have to change that perception right. by electing officials who um, are, you know, represent the best interests of the people. As, as you know, as members of the government or employees of the government, you can do the best you can where you are. But ultimately, right. that's a political action of leadership and selecting leaders who are able to bring out the best in the folks who who work for them as loyal um, civic servants. Um, I, and I say that because. Um, it's important to recognize the fact that, like, as civil servants, you're there, you know, to serve the administration who is duly elected by the citizens of the United States. Um, and each of us, like, I am a firm believer that we get the government that we as the people deserve. That's how a democracy works. And if right. you want a government that is functional, you want to elect leaders that are functional. I'll leave it at that. Right.
1: You're not taking personal responsibility. Uh, I think that's a really great point in terms of. I think a lot of times we kind of see government and see our roles as citizens as something like that, that's kind of abstract. We don't recognize that we have direct influence on the way things are. So that's a really a salient point. Um, we talked a lot about a lot of ideas, and I want to give this uh, opportunity for you to kind of provide some key takeaways for our listeners.
0: Uh, well, I hope some of this has been helpful. Um, I guess. Um, starting from uh, what what you just mentioned, um, taking that responsibility of like, hey, this is this land is your land, this land is our land, right. and you know, trying to make a uh, you know your piece of it, you know, um, as good for folks as you can. Um, just that mindset—that's not a mindset that comes naturally to everybody, right? The idea that you are your you know your brother or sister's keeper, and you're you're trying to help each other. Just getting to that point is can be a major lift, especially you know given uh, how challenging things have been for communities over the past year and a half. But I like to hope that it's something that helps uh, bring us all together. It's only through that alignment that we move forward because until we're all aligned um, and we're all looking after each other and working to help each other, um, a bunch of folks can come with a lot of innovative ideas, but it won't actually result in large-scale change. It'll result in small change here and there, or change that's disruptive and hurts a lot of people. But big change comes from folks who are aligning and who really have that mindset of how they can interact and engage with the people around them for big organizations too? Um, not necessarily, you know, putting your foot down and being like, "Okay, everybody has to do it this way," but respecting and understanding that different people are going to have different viewpoints. And if we can all agree that we want to move in this direction, let's figure out the best way to do that, and let's compromise and work together to accomplish that. Um, that's uh, once again, um, leadership is about addition, but execution is about subtraction, and. Knowing when to do one and when to do the other, and you know where you can engage the most effectively, I think is the challenge that anybody who's traversing an organization has, uh, whether it's an organization of four or forty or four hundred or four thousand or four million or forty million, or in our case three hundred fifty million.
1: Yeah, great point. And I think that's a great way to to end this. Uh, thank you so much, Conrad. I really appreciate uh, you know having you on the show. Like I know our listeners are going to enjoy this uh, particular episode, and uh, really, really. Uh, really appreciate your insights, and as always, super super uh, happy to have you. So thank you so much. And our listeners, you know what? You know the drill. Um, you can follow us at MSY Associates at Official Gipl. That's our Twitter handle. You can also. Uh, Follow us on LinkedIn, same thing, MSY Associates. And uh, we are now available on Spotify, Google, and Apple. So we've, we've moved on up here. So thank you again, listeners. And as you know, this is Government Plain Language, and we are uncomplicating the business of government. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the show, please share it with others. Share it on social media and even leave a review. To catch all the latest from our team, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MSY Associates. That's MSY Associates. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.